You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, maybe seated. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. We do have Redemption Hill kids this morning. So if that serves you, parents, uh, we have classes for 2 to 4 and 5 to 9. You can go now. Thank you, those who are serving in uh, Redemption Hill Kids this morning. Thank you, Layla. I know you're teaching the five to nines and whoever else is in there. You know, I do a lot of advanced planning when I uh, put together a sermon series. But it never gets old to see the providence of God at work. (laughs) Like, it just, it never gets old. Uh, sometimes I create a plan, and then God, the Holy Spirit, makes things fit better than I ever could have planned. For example, uh, last Sunday I did not preach. Logan preached, and he felt led to preach from Psalm 19, the latter half of Psalm 19, as many of you know, was about the Word of God. And then I planned this many months ago that when we start our class on what we confess with coffee, because we're studying our confession of faith with a cup of coffee in our hand, that first chapter is what? It's on the Holy Scriptures. So we got last Sunday, right? Logan's preaching on God's Word. And then yesterday we had our first class on the Holy Scriptures. And now we come to this wonderful text, which is about what? The Word of God. I mean... I'm not that smart nor creative, (laughs) just putting that out there, but God in his providence knows how to knit things together better than any of us could possibly do. And that should be an encouragement to you, and I think that should be an encouragement for all of us this morning, uh, because this is God's God's church, and uh, I hope that encourages your heart this morning. And today... We come to one of the most well-known passages in the book of Hebrews. If it's not the most well-known passage, it's probably in your top three. I was talking to Ryan earlier, and it's like, yeah, if you were in Pioneers or Awana or some type of uh, Bible club growing up, like this verse was in the cards for you to memorize. Everyone knows this verse if you grew up in the church. And several weeks ago, I, I, I told you that I want you to put a pin in these particular verses because I wanted to preach this particular passage kind of on its own terms. It's certainly connected to the entire scope of Romans 4, but I really wanted to highlight this particular text. So before I pray and ask help from the Spirit, I want to remind you how we got to verse 11. Prior to Logan preaching last week, uh, we spent several weeks considering what it means to be at rest with God. So I spent one week really focusing on what it means to be spiritually at rest in Christ. And then the following week, I tried to point out that we are to be physically and spiritually at rest with God. That was kind of week two of this mini-series within the book of Hebrews. And then the third week, I focused on what our rest has to do with Sunday, the Lord's Day. And now we read this transition in verse 11 of Hebrews 4. Let us therefore 
So in light of everything that I've said, those five, therefore means, in light of everything I've said, therefore, strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It's kind of our transition verse into verses 12 and 13. This verse suggests your faith, your pursuit of rest is indeed active. The word strive literally means, coming out of of the Greek, make every effort. You strive in your faith so that you do not fall into the same disobedience as the Israelites did when they were brought out of Egypt. So for that little mini-sermon, those three sermons, that was kind of the, the example that the author of Hebrews was constantly going back to. Don't be like them, but strive. And here's the deal. It does not matter if you rightly strive by the grace of God, and certainly by the grace of God, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, or if you live contrary to the gospel, does not matter. The Word of God exposes a person's motives, intentions, and actions. That's kind of what we see today. If I had to like put a proposition statement up or a summary statement up, it would be that the Word of God exposes a person's motives, intentions, and actions. And my aim this morning is to show you the various ways the Word of God finds us out. When I say finds us out, I mean that is a really, really, really good thing. We want God to find us out so that we can understand ourselves better in light of who God is. So that we can rightly walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is the connection between our striving to be at rest and verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 4. So let me pray, I'm going to ask for God's help, and then we'll get into today's sermon. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning needing your help, knowing that in the power of the Spirit, I want to be faithful to what you have already spoken. And I pray for these folks in front of me, that you would indeed speak to their mind and their heart and their lives. We thank you for what you've already said, and we know that continues to be alive today. So we desperately need your help this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More than 15 years ago, I was conversing with someone um, on a church staff, and I was a Maybe it was more like 20 years ago now. can't quite remember. Um, the Lord had recently saved me. And I, and I went to this individual, and I kind of just opened up to him, right? Great guy. And uh, I said to him, God sweetly convicted me of my sin while I was reading his word. That's the sum of what I told him. And again, great guy. So I'm not not disparaging anyone, but he retorted and said, I do not like the word conviction. Now, as a young 
believer. I didn't know what to do with that statement. So I kind of let it lie and just went on with my life. (laughs) But it's always stuck with me. What was the problem with being convicted because of my sin when I'm reading the Word of God? Why did he like recoil to that? Now, I'm going to give you my, my best guess at the conclusion of this sermon. Now, I do, not, I do not remember the passage from the Bible which caused a deep conviction to rise in my soul. It could have been Hebrews 4, as you see today, Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. The book of Hebrews, as a reminder, is a sermon, probably a sermon, about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But as the author of Hebrews, and as the person who's reading this and and preaching it, several warnings are sprinkled in as the author of Hebrews is preaching on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We saw our first warning in Hebrews 2, chapter 2. The crux of that warning is pay attention to the message that was preached and that you heard. Pay attention so that you will not neglect, that was the key word in Hebrews 2, so that you will not neglect the gospel message. Because the moment you neglect the gospel message, you might drift from God. That was was the warning in a nutshell. The second warning is what Dean read um, to you during the public reading of Scripture just a few minutes ago. Now, why do we need warnings? People give warnings for multiple reasons. Uh, When my kiddos were younger, and if you're a parent, you know this to be true, you give warnings to your kids. Here's a few. Uh, Kiddos, don't touch the stove. Right? You don't know if it's hot or not, or if it's on or not, but don't touch the stove because in the event that it is on, guess what's going to happen? You're going to burn your hand. When we lived in Minnesota, uh, this was a common one. Don't go in the street. <laughs> right? You, you need mom and dad's hand to, to cross the street. And the warning was for their what? For their safety. So th- those are good warnings. Here's one I think maybe we all uh, interact with on a daily basis. Uh, we, we see stop signs. We see speed limit signs. We see all kinds of signs when we're driving down the road. And whether you pay attention to those signs or not, maybe the speed limit's 65 and, and, you know, and you're mentally in your head, you think it's 75, right? Those signs are, are meant to be warnings. If, if you drive... 100 miles an hour on Interstate 80 on the way to Omaha, I'm not going to be shocked if you get a speeding ticket because you did not heed the warning, right? So, a warning can be a sweet, eye-opening caution and reminder, or it might bring consequences if you do not take the warning seriously. Everything I'm saying right now is just practical life, which is another reason why I love the Word of God. It speaks practically into our lives. We need to take the warnings that we read in Holy Scripture seriously. The warning in Hebrews 4 is is meant to make you aware of the power and potency of the Word of God in your life. 
You're supposed to, you're supposed to pay attention to what God has said in this book. Because it's for your good. That's the warning. And people receive God's word in at least two different ways, at least. For the Christian, the power and potency of God's word is actually a balm, right? You got something itchy on your skin and it's just irritating and you, you put the right cream on it and all of a sudden it soothes it. The word of God and the warnings we read in his word are meant to soothe. For the unbeliever, the power and potency of God's word can expose rebellion. Rebellion that is certainly and begins in the heart. How can the word of God have such an impact on a person's life? Take a look at verse 12. The word of God is what? Y'all who grew up memorizing this verse is living and active. There you go. Waking up the uh, quieter Midwestern folk. Living and active. That's what the word of God is. The Word of God is not collecting dust on your shelf along with those 50, 50 books that you've been meeting to read. Nope. A person might have a physical Bible collecting dust on a shelf, but that does not mean God has not spoken and He continues to speak. The Word of God is full of life and at work. What is the nature of God's Word? Now, to really grasp the profundity of the Word of God, I need to connect a few dots to understand the nature, its nature. What do we see in Hebrews 1? At the very outset of this entire sermon series, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, what? He has spoken to us through the Son. We've got to connect that dot with Hebrews 4, going back to Hebrews 1. I mean, this sermon series is called God Has Spoken for a Reason. And he continues to speak. The first two verses in this book clearly state that God has supremely spoken through the Son, Jesus Christ. And the theme is picked up here in verse 4, or excuse me, in chapter 4, verse 12. Here's another dot I want to connect from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Again, if you grew up memorizing the Bible and, and Pioneers or Awana, this was on your list. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him, not anything that was made. The conclusion that we need to arrive at is that Jesus is the central focus of what God has spoken. From Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God is the Son of God. It's harder, it's more just like an FYI or parenthetical note or foot end or end note, excuse me. It's harder for English readers to grasp that, but in the original Greek, that connection made a lot of sense. From Genesis to Revelation, the Word of God is the Son of God. The 35-ish authors 
of the books of the Bible were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 is the word of God and has been spoken by God. And what God has spoken has been given to us now in written format. And praise be to God for that. Therefore, God might convict me, Sean Powers, when I read my Bible because ultimate truth can expose my sin. God might convict me if I sin throughout the day, not necessarily because I have God's word in front of my eyes in written format, because it's been imprinted upon my heart, and that rightly convicts me of sin. This is a sign, if you've experienced this, this is a sign that the word of God is living and active in your life. And that is such a good thing. The word of God is even described being sharper than a double-edged sword. Not one edge, but there's at least a blade on each end of the sword. If the word of God is living and active... And this is the question I was just kind of asking myself, just prodding my own heart earlier this week. If the living Word of God, if, if, if the Word of God is living and active, excuse me, then why do so many Christians look to wisdom in books that do not carry the same authority or divine nature? In other words, why are some consumed with what, with what other people say about the Word of God and not the thing itself. Listen, I have no problem reading a commentary. If you've been around here long enough, you know that I'll use a commentary from time to time that I think is helpful for us to understand God's Word. I am helped by reading various theologians and figures in church history. You can ask my wife. I have accumulated many books over 20 years Many of which obviously are not the Bible. Probably too many books. My bad. But let's be careful not to confuse God's Word with someone else's thoughts on God's Word. Only God's Word has the power and potency to cut us in all the right ways. And again, don't hear me saying, don't read that book over there. I've handed books out to you for your encouragement. But let's just not confuse the two. Only God's word has the power and potency to cut us in all the right places. We read in verse 11 where the word of God cuts. The power and potency of God's word are described in three different pairs. So soul and spirit, marrow and joints, thoughts and what I'm calling heart thoughts. I'll explain that in a moment. Each pair is meant to show you that the Word of God impacts and cuts into every aspect of your life. Dudes, you're, you're better at this, I think, than, than the ladies. But uh, we can compartmentalize stuff. At least I'll speak for myself. Like, you got all these things going on, but you can be like, I'm going to push aside these five things and focus on this one box. And here's what I'm saying to all of us. Like, whether you can compartmentalize or not, the Word of God can get through all of that and expose what's there. 
Let's look at each pairing and see what's going on here. Some look at this alleged division of soul and spirit to say that human beings are made up of three parts, body, soul, spirit. I will table that debate because the debate misses the point of the passage. The Word of God is so powerful that it can cut through what should be inseparable. Here are a couple points regarding the the language of soul and spirit used here. The Word of God is not living and active for my dog, Winston. Love my dog, Winston. He's getting old. I'm going to crawl like a baby when we get to put him down. That'll happen. But the Word of God is not living and active for the best dog in the entire world, my dog, Winston. I love my dog, Winston, but there's something fundamentally different between him and me. I have a soul. He does not. You and I are made in God's image and therefore are impacted by the Word of God. I can read the Gospel of John aloud to my dog, Winston, and not one thing is going to change in his life. Get through all the chapters, but nothing's going to change. So not only do we see the unique nature of God's image bearers, but we also see how God reveals himself to his people and how the revelation of God's word impacts people. I mean, have you ever experienced um, reading God's word and then all of a sudden um, you have like massive clarity on an issue? It could be something new that was just kind of brought up in your life or something you've been wrestling with your entire life and you're reading God's Word and you're like, whoa, that just kind of put all the puzzle pieces together for me, right? Here's one example of the power of God's Word and just in my own life. Uh, I, I know that um, the year 2020 is like the year we're supposed to forget about and never mention. It's like Voldemort if you're a Harry Potter fan. You just don't say it. Got to block it out, but I'm going to say it. Between COVID, protests, and rioting in many cities across America, 2020 caused a lot of people to do soul-searching, right? At the very least, I think that's a very true statement. Regardless of how you diagnose it, everyone's kind of like, whoa, this is new for all of us. When a person does soul-searching, The options are to look at the world for answers, look to yourself for answers, or look to God for answers. And and during 2020, I spent a lot of time reading Proverbs and the book of Isaiah. I read the book of Proverbs, God's Word, repeatedly, repeatedly, because I wanted to understand the wisdom of God through His Word. And as I read Proverbs, I realized how much I, I trusted in my own wisdom or, or, or the wisdom of all those books that I, I read through, what, 10 years of theological education or more, right? And I'm reading Proverbs, and I'm like, whoa, huh. that author that I aspired to be or that pastor I aspired to be can't hold a candle, does not compare to the wisdom that I read about in God's Word. So that was, that was just revolutionary for me. also read the book of Isaiah. 
read the book of Isaiah because I was really trying to wrestle with how does God understand justice and lawlessness when before our eyes so much was happening. Just trying to make sense of it all. Now, I'm not here to say that I figured out all the reasons for the ills of our country during that turbulent year. Far from it. What I am suggesting is that if you believe God's word is powerful and potent to cut through the soul and spirit, then surely it can help you discern the world that you live in. So, the word of God can cut to help us see things from God's perspective. Here's another example of God's word cutting like a double-edged sword. Again, we hear that when it's like, ooh, that's hurt. It's not meant to hurt. It's meant to help. The double-edged sword of God's word is not meant to hurt, but to help. That is so important to realize. We read that God's word also cuts through joints and marrow. The marrow of a bone is the very core of the bone where most of the red blood cells are produced. Some white blood cells are produced there as well. I'm not a scientist. I read it online. So, The joint is the point of the connection outside of the bone itself that joins another bone, right? So the, you got a joint and it brings two bones together. Physically speaking, the marrow and joint are to not be separated. But God's word is so powerful is that it does cut through. Like if you're in the medical field, I'm sure you can kind of appreciate that picture. It's not a secret um, that I lived a devilish life before becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. To say that I have a checkered past prior to knowing Christ would be like the understatement of the century. But after coming to faith, I began to read God's word. And guess what? It was cutting and piercing joints and marrow. It was telling me things like anger in the heart is murder. It was telling me things like lusting after a woman who is not your wife is adultery. It was challenging me in areas like, hey, Sean Powers, how about you love your neighbor? How about you love God and then love your neighbor? All these commands and others in God's word worked better than any actual double-edged sword. God's word is like a, a skilled orthopedic surgeon working to align a joint that connects two bones together. God's word is breathing life into the marrow to produce the appropriate white and red blood cells. God's word cuts us, not to cause us to bleed, but to help us to see that God's ways are far better than our ways or the ways to live in which we're told about in our culture on a daily basis. And just in case um, you don't see the point yet, the Word of God discerns your thoughts and the, what we read uh, coming out of the English or the ESV, the intentions of your heart. More literally, the Word of God discerns the thoughts in your mind and the thoughts in your heart. 
I hope you can see from verse 12 that the word of God does not just engage part of you. And as I said earlier, it engages all of you. The words of God expose sin. It also helps you understand and navigate the world. It also helps you to grow to become more like Christ. But here's another aspect in which the word of God impacts a person's life. The word of God, in particular, the preached word of God, is used by God to save. Charles Spurgeon, the pastor and preacher from the 19th century, knew the power and potency of God's Word. His preaching and writing ministry certainly shows the power and potency of God's Word. If you know anything about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he, God used him to impact thousands and thousands and thousands of people as he preached at Metropolitan Tabernacle in the, in the London Metro. Here was, here's what Charles Spurgeon recounts what happened to him on January 6, 1850, in a small town northeast of London, well before he preached his first sermon. And I'm quoting him, and I'm going to go back and forth between him and another guy. Spurgeon starts, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now, had it not been for God's goodness in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. Like he was seeing God's goodness in a snowstorm. (laughs) When I could go no further, like there's no plows on the road, right? He's just trudging through the snow. When I could go no further, I turned down a court, a street, and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. So a small church. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. A poor man. A shoemaker. I actually get chills when I say it. A tailor. Or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. It's got a little humor in Spurgeon, right? He's going to stick to the text as he got nothing else. The text was, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Spurgeon continues, He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began his sermon. Now, this is the shoemaker. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. The shoemaker continues. No, that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't even lifting your foot or finger. It is just, look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Look unto me. I could stop right there, and I think you all know where this is going, but i got to tell the rest of the story because it's really good. Spurgeon responds, says, I, he said in broad Essex, it says dialect. The shoemaker continues, 
Many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. And then Spurgeon says, Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on a cross. Look, I am buried and dead. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, to me, look to me. Spurgeon commented, when he had got about that length, he managed to spin out 10 minutes. He was at length of his tether. <laughs> then he looked at me under the gallery, and dare I say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Then he said, young man, you look very miserable. Spurgeon, well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made to me in my personal appearance from the pulpit, pulpit before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And then Spurgeon finally comments, There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. I've always wanted to share that story. The primitive Methodist shoemaker from Essex may have given the most, from our perspective, from a 21st century American preaching perspective, he may have given the most simplistic sermon ever preached. There was no grand PowerPoint. There was no smoke and lights show. The preacher did not take a zip line onto the stage before he preached. No fancy objects were used to illustrate a point. There's no basketball hoop to kind of weave into the sermon to make an illustration. The shoemaker preached the living and active word of God. He gave straight gospel heat. He did the one thing that changed Spurgeon's life. He preached the word of God. He set it loose. That primitive Methodist shoemaker spoke the living and active word of God, and God's word pierced the soul, spirit, joint, marrow, mind, and heart of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Have you ever paused for a moment and asked, why does Pastor Sean preach to us on Sunday? Why does Pastor Rob preach to us on Sunday? What is with his 40-minute monologue? And I just say from my perspective, it's the 40 minutes of the week where I get to say something uninterrupted. But I digress. I preach in part because of what we read in today's passage. In the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God shapes your mind and heart. 
God's word speaks to you even when you're not expected to be spoken to. He speaks. Most of you know this by now. When a man stands behind this pulpit to preach, he's not looking to entertain you. He's not trying to lure you in with cute stories. Now, a person who preaches might be charismatic or not. Helpful stories might be shared. Fine. An illustration can be helpful. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra preached the word of God and gave the sense. The point is that God's word takes primacy. It needs to be central. And everything else is simply an aid to understand the living and active word of God. If you walk away and you say, Pastor Sean gave a great story, and that's right, I remember from his sermon, then I have failed you as a preacher. But if you walk away and you say, man, God's word is living and active. Whew, that is so good for me. Then that's the W. That's the win. You don't need me speaking life into you. You need God's word speaking life into you. Sean Powers is barely alive and and ineffective and is a dull, single-edged butter knife. That's how I picture myself. I can't cut anything but butter with that knife. However, this dull, single-edged butter knife carries with him something sharper than a double-edged sword. This book. Hear this from Ephesians 6. In all circumstances, take up the, field, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And look at that last part of verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians 6 tells us another use of the word of God. Not only does God's word cut us to the quick like a sword, right? It helps us to understand God's world, and it calls us to saving faith, but it's also a tool to use to protect ourselves from the evil one. Last week, um, Logan mentioned that when he was younger, he had a, a leather satchel, so the Lord just saved him, right? He was telling the story. And he had a satchel, and in his satchel was the Word of God. And in that moment, as I was listening to Logan, I'm trying to picture Logan wearing this leather satchel with a Bible, you know, throughout his day. It's like, just can't picture the two things together. But the picture really does work because in that satchel is a sword. Once again, we see the power and potency the word of God. God's word protects us from the evil one. If I were to stop preaching and pray and kind of close things out, I think you all can see the main point being made in Hebrews 4 verse 12. God has spoken, Hebrews 1, and God's word impacts every part of our life, spiritual, physical, the thoughts and minds, uh, the thoughts in your mind and the thoughts in your heart. But then we read verse 13, which accents our state of being before the word of God. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
I'm going to level with you. I'm not sure there's a more sobering verse in the book of Hebrews than verse 13 of Hebrews 4. Verse 13 is not an attempt to be crude, but to be honest. God has spoken. God continues to speak through the word. And you, Sean Powers, stands before God naked. The word that comes to my mind when I read about being naked is we're like vulnerable before God. In all the best senses of what it means to be vulnerable before God. There can be multiple reasons, or excuse me, reactions when a person realizes they're naked and exposed. A person might try to find something to wear, which is, I think, a reasonable response. Like, go grab the robe. Or a person realizes who is speaking to them and kneels in worship, knowing that the robe will do nothing. Frankly, the fool grabs the robe, thinking to themselves they can hide from God. The humble person bows before its maker. The humble person receives God's word and allows God's word to work in their life. You know, something that's sobering can be really, really good. And to be naked and exposed before God is actually a really good thing for us. Don't let that threaten you, right? Our sinful, we can have sinful reactions where that feels very threatening, but actually lean into it because it's ultimately for your good. I finally want to circle back to my opening story about my uh, friend recoiling at the idea of being convicted by God because of sin, right? Why did he recoil, right? I think he recoiled. Because there is a misunderstanding, with some people, not all, between being convicted by God and the condemnation that comes from sin. A person receiving clarity about reality, personal sin, and holiness is actually undergoing sanctification. Um, It means growing and becoming more and more like Christ over time, right? Grow into the likeness of Christ because of multiple moments of conviction and then subsequent change. Conviction is much different than condemnation. The living and active Word of God does not condemn the Christian. There's therefore, that word now is really important, now no condemnation for anyone for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that verse sink in as you allow God's word to work on you like a double-edged sword. You are exposed before God, including all your sins. Your sins try to condemn you. Your sins try to tell you lies, or they do tell you lies. Your sins tell you that you can never be right with God, but you, Christian, look to the cross where Jesus Christ was hanged to atone and forgive your sins. You were no longer condemned, but declared what? You were declared justified by God. The great exchange has taken place. Jesus is on the cross and not you. Until you die, 
or the Lord returns, you continue to allow God's word to impact your life. You allow God's word to help you fight against sin. You use God's word to sand off the rough edges in your life. And man, let me tell you, I've had plenty of rough edges in my life and I continue to have plenty of rough edges in my life and I need God's sandpaper just to get it all down. God's word is meant to prune you of old ways and rotten ways of your former self. The double-edged sword is living and active and it is at work in your life to the glory of God. However, the unbeliever is condemned because of their sin. If you feel condemnation because of your sin, you need to respond to Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved. You also stand before God naked and exposed. You stand before God with only one hope. You need to respond to his word. And perhaps I'll end with asking you to respond to what we've already seen in the book of Hebrews. We read this in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. If you don't know Christ, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.